Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Radical Compliance podcast. I'm Matt Kelly, editor of Radical Compliance. Thank you for joining us today. Today, we're going to talk about building a large organization's first formal ethics and compliance program. Many organizations already do have some ethics and compliance capabilities, and maybe you've even had those capabilities for many years. But what does a compliance officer do when the powers that be say, okay, let's build a dedicated, specific, visible ethics and compliance program? How does a compliance officer then look at the pieces of ethics and compliance you already have, compare that to the ethics and compliance capabilities you want, then you develop an actual plan to get from here to there and build your program. Joining me to talk about that sort of a challenge is Ling Ling Ni. She is the General Counsel and Vice President of Ethics and Compliance for Georgia Tech. And Ling Ling is here because she is doing that very task at Georgia Tech right now. Ling Ling joined Georgia Tech in March after spending most of this decade in the corporate sector and five years at the U.S. Treasury Department. Building Georgia Tech's first formal ethics and compliance program is her task right now. So, Ling Ling, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. It's my privilege. Great to be here. So, first question, what are you doing and why are you doing it now? I'm sure that Georgia Tech is a big institution. It must have had some ethics and compliance capabilities prior to this, but what's the impetus here for the uh, school to build a more formal function? What's going on? Yeah, um, I mean, it's kind of an understatement when you say Georgia Tech is a big institution because one of the first things that really surprised me when I got here on campus was just how large it is as an enterprise. Um, there are so many layers um, to running a, an institute of this size with this significant amount of sort of research funding kind of flowing through the doors. Yep. Um, and they have a very complicated sort of governance structure and they have 16 different, you know, affiliated organizations, which are separate 501c3s mm -hmm. um, that exist for the benefit of the Institute. So, you know, everything that I do sort of encompasses all of that. So I was one very surprised uh, about how large this um, Institute actually is. Um, if you follow the news locally in Atlanta, um, there was a lot of news, news regarding some quote unquote ethics scandals here at the Institute about a year ago where we had some very senior level executives engaged in conflicts of interest as well as sort of spending um, public funds um, in, a, in inappropriate ways. Mm -hmm. um, so another thing I've learned about working in higher education is that, you know, these organizations are still revered um, in a way that companies aren't. Um, because they're supposed to be sort of these ivory towers of of um, academic and uh, free-flowing exchange of ideas and making progress with um, you know new new theories and and new sort of society society sort of com commentary on society. So they're still revered in a way. So things that may seem to be fairly um, fairly small, you know, uh, violations or uh, events of, you know, misconduct elsewhere are pretty serious, you know, in a, in a higher education institution, um, particularly one that's heavily reported on um, by local media. So these particular activities or, mis or events that occurred um, really had some negative impact on the, on the reputation of the Institute. 
and the Institute has been working since then to kind of regain uh, the trust of not just the public, but its employees and its students and alumni and all the kind of stakeholders that kind of look to, to the Institute um, as a source of, you know, pride. So if there's a, an event or a series of events that may have been an impetus, you know, for really starting to pull together a formal program, that's probably it. Um, but I say that not, you know, I say that knowing that it's not the only sort of driver. I mean, as a whole, um, Georgia Tech really prides itself on focusing on being kind of the best in class, being world class in all aspects, not just academics, not just in their research, but in their systems and their processes and kind of their key areas of um, operations like risk management and in-house legal services. So I think there's been a constant move for the last, you know, 10, 15 years or so to really be world class in all aspects. And this is an area I think that they had sort of looked at for a while as one that they could um, have an opportunity to do that. So I think it was a couple sort of, you know, um, motivators. One was, again, the events of last year, but also just an ongoing sort of commitment to 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 wanting to be uh, kind of the uh, premier um, higher education institution in, in so many ways, including having a fully built out ethics and compliance program. Well, tell me about the gap analysis that somebody in your shoes would need to do to figure out things like structure and resources. So when you look at the collection of risks that the organization has, the resources that Georgia Tech does already have, because I'm sure there are some audit compliance capabilities hither and yon, like how do you look at all of that and then devise a plan and say, all right, therefore we want to do this with personnel. We want to do this with IT systems and make this some sort of improvement. It does sound like a very broad, all-encompassing task. So how do you figure out which end is up? Um, well, there's a lot of lessons to be learned, you know, from yeah. compliance professionals um, across uh, mostly corporations. I think in many ways, higher ed is still kind of catching up um, to companies in the private sector in terms of having a formal ethics and compliance function. Because what I'm seeing here is what probably a lot of people saw at companies maybe 15, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. where there are sort of ethics and compliance functions that are sprinkled across the organization, but they're not centralized, they're not sort of consolidated under a formal program, and that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, so coming in, you know, the first order of business was kind of was was kind of to try to identify, you know, what are all the existing ethics and compliance functions, and where do they live, and what are they doing, and are they doing it well? You know, so there were a lot of functions that were sitting in internal audit, for example. Mm -hmm. There were some within HR, um, and there were some that were in specific business units or colleges. Um, so it was kind of taking inventory of what exists um, is, is, is kind of like the first step, and it's kind of what I'm doing now. Um, and then sort of looking at your risk profile and, you know, what are the things that could most negatively impact, you know, your enterprise or your ability to achieve, you know, your goals. And one difference from the, from, from the, comp from the companies um, where I've worked is, you know, those are for-profit companies, you know, revenue is is uh, paramount. Um, so you look at risk through that lens where you're looking at what's going to impact revenue, what's going to make us lose money. Um, but in higher ed, the risk profile really centers around reputational harm. Yeah. It's not really about 
are we going to lose money? Um, is, is this going to be too expensive? It's more about what's going to hurt us the most in the eyes of the public. And so things like athletics, um, things like Title IX, sexual misconduct and gender equity issues, those are sorts of things that are heavily reported on, uh, mostly negatively when things go wrong. Um, so that's where you kind of have to allocate resources. And as you structure your team, those are the kind of areas of expertise you want to make sure that you're hiring for um, in, 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 uh, in your actual uh, ethics and compliance program professional team. Mm-hmm. I did see not long ago that you promoted one of your staff to be chief ethics and compliance officer at Georgia Tech. So that did lead me to wonder how much of the work here is getting the personnel structures correct versus the more mechanical, the IT systems, the data analytics and all of that. What can you tell us? Yeah, so I promoted um, Aisha Oliver Staley um, to chief ethics and compliance officer um, because I was very pleasantly surprised that there was someone of her caliber and expertise here already who really had those really important soft skills that you need to be a successful chief ethics and compliance officer. Yeah. Um, you know, I had that role at Panasonic, and so I kind of know firsthand what are the things that make someone in those in those shoes successful. And she really checked all the boxes. Um, so it was my pleasure to you know promote her to that role. And now she's sort of going through the, I guess, the Rolodex, for for lack of a better word, of people here on campus who touch in some way ethics and compliance to see where we can repurpose folks, where we can refocus people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are certain areas, though, that we're going to have to go outside to hire um, because this campus has never had a formal ethics and compliance program. So there's key key skills that we just don't have here that we're going to have to look outside for. Um, in particular, the communications, engagement, and branding and marketing part of running an ethics and compliance program doesn't really exist, you know, as in the way it, it, it does in an ethics and compliance program at, at a corporation. So those are roles that we're going to be looking outside um, to, to bring in that talent. What about trying to get the, the data and the systems and the analytics part up and running? How much do you already have or how much do you think you're going to need some work there? Well, the nice thing about working in a very large higher education institution is they have really great resources in those areas. Um, you know, especially a research institute has really great systems for data management, um, very secure systems, you know, mm-hmm. because of the, the the target that a lot of higher ed education institutions are with um, people who want to, um, you know, hack into different systems. So we have yeah. very good infrastructure here and and good tools that we're leveraging by working with our partners in our information technology office. I want to pick up on something you said a few minutes ago about the importance of soft skills like branding and communication, because I've met many CCOs and chief audit executives who are the first ones filling that role at their organizations. And then they go to other parts of the business and the other parts of the business are not really hostile per se, but they are more confused, basically telling the compliance officer, you're supposed to be solving these problems for me, which is not really correct. You are there to help them manage their own ethics and compliance challenges more effectively. So I guess my question is, how do you overcome that mindset when you encounter it and explain to people what the ethics and compliance function is really there to do? It's just really a a lesson in education for people because, like you said, they're not hostile, but they don't understand. Mm -hmm. And so they don't understand something, then they push back because it's not familiar to them. And, you know, we as humans like things to be familiar and comfortable. Um, 
and you really have to learn to speak their language. I've always thought that um, the best compliance officers are ones that can really connect with all walks of life and speak to the analogies or the references that make sense for that person um, so that you can get over sort of the, the, the language barrier in many ways because compliance is sometimes a very new concept. Um, but really it's just having good people skills like we, we talked about earlier. I mean, I remember years ago going to a gathering of compliance professionals. Um, I don't remember what, I can't remember now what city it was or even exactly when it was. I'm, my memory's kind of foggy there. But what I do remember, you know, vividly was there was one gentleman there who was a chief compliance officer at some company. And he expressed, you know, real frustration um, in not being able to get people, in his words, to do what he wants them to do in terms of assessing their risks, implementing controls, mm -hmm. and that he was having a really difficult time. And earlier that night, I had a chance to talk with him and overheard him talking with other folks as well. And I have to say, he was one of the most grumpiest, negative, <laughs> complaining people I've ever met. Just not, not a pleasant personality. And so it was very clear to me you know, why he has such a challenge in getting people to do, in his words, what he wants them to do. You really have to make friends um, in this role. Um, you, really have to, you really have to lead through connecting with people and leading through warmth um, and establishing that as a threshold before you can actually ask anyone to do something that they may feel uncomfortable or feel put upon. Um, so it really is having those human skills, those communication skills, um, that are really going to make or break, I think, whether or not you're going to be successful in this role or not. And again, I'm very lucky and very fortunate that Aisha here on campus um, has those qualities and I don't have to go out and look for, for the right candidate because she was here all along. Uh, so the Oscar the Grouch approach does not work for ethics and compliance? Not at all. No, if it does for anyone, I'd love to hear from them. But from, in my experience, it does not work. Well, you know, the funny thing is audit executives will say the exact same thing, that they need these um, people empathy skills when they're doing a very different sort of a job. But the people skills that you need are a through line between both professions. And I hear that so often. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Uh, so let me ask, how are you going to measure your progress and success in implementing this program here? You know, this is something I've given a lot of thought to because how we measure success in some ways looks very different from the way I've done it in the past working at a company. So I'm having to change. I'm having to be more creative, I think, about how I'm going to assess progress and success here. Certainly, there are similarities in terms of certain metrics. For example, one thing I always look to is how many of our leaders have who, who are responsible for putting together their strategic plans for the year, how many of them have included ethics or compliance as one of those goals? You know, you can measure those sorts of things. Um, and I think that's something that's important regardless of what organization you're working for as a great temperature reader for, you know, is this something that leadership prioritizes? And then last question, since you had mentioned this uh, uh, earlier, you did go from the corporate world where you had a very lucrative career to higher ed, very different setting. How does that transition work? Uh, what's the, the move been like for you? Um, it's been what I thought it would be, which is very different. Um, and it was very deliberate um, that I decided to make this move because I really wanted something very challenging. Um, I don't know how like how much you've like interviewed in your life, but a lot of interviewers will ask candidates, you know, what is your weakness? What's your one weakness or your greatest weakness? Mm -hmm. um, 
and mine really is I have a very short attention span, um, but I've able to manage it in my life, you know, and, and correct that and be very conscious of it so it doesn't hurt me. Um, but it translates into kind of my views about my career. I mean, I I couldn't be, I don't think I could be someone who'd stay in any place for like 20 or 25 years. Mm -hmm. I have deep respect for people who do. No, no, um, uh, no negative sort of comments on that at all. Everyone's different. But that's not something that I think I personally could really do because I'm not hardwired that way. Um, so it was really um, deliberate on my part to choose an industry that was completely different from what I had been doing to kind of challenge myself in a new way. But it has been um, it has been a challenge in many, many ways. You know, one, I, just, I mentioned earlier, the Open Records Act really changes the way I communicate with my team and my staff. It changes the way I, again, evaluate my programs because certain tools are not as appropriate, I think, in this context as it would be at a corporation. Mm -hmm. um, the pace is slower. You know, it's not a misc um, uh, it's not a myth. You know, when you work for a public institution, the pace is slower because a lot of the decision making is done by consensus, and so everybody wants to have kind of their input, and it takes a while to kind of gather that and then kind of circle the wagons and discuss it one more time so everyone can land on the same kind of agreement on on how we're going to go forward. So the pace is slower, which is very different from where I'm coming as well. Um, lots of differences, but lots of similarities. Um, I think one area where higher education is great is that in their decision-making process, they really are committed to getting it right. It's not about getting it done fast. It's about getting it done right. So it's kind of nice to be in an environment where people are really thoughtful uh, about how things that they say or do may impact others, mm -hmm. which is something I don't see as much you know, in the private sector. All right. Well, Ling Ling, that's all the time that we have today, but you covered a lot of ground for us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Absolutely. I hope it was informative and helpful, but it was a real pleasure to be here. All right. And again, everybody, that was Ling Ling Ni. She is General Counsel and Vice President of Ethics and Compliance for Georgia Tech, talking with us today about her project to build that school's first ethics and compliance program. Uh, that is all for this podcast. I'm your host, Matt Kelly. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.